We are in Matthew chapter 16, and uh, we have come as far as verse 24. Uh, Jesus is up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, he is in under the jurisdiction at this point of Herod Philip. He's kind of removed himself from the hostility of uh, the religious people that are looking to kill him and persecute him so he can have time alone with the disciples. And it's up here in this area where he asks them, who, who do men say that I am? And uh, they say, well, some say you're uh, Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. And then he begins to tell them, the Son of Man, I'm headed up to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to be handed over to the scribes and the elders, and I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to rise again the third day. And, of course, Peter's freaked out. I'm sure they all are. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shouldn't happen. Because I know Peter's thinking, well, he just said to me, blessed are thou Simon Barzonah, and if God's speaking to me today, I should probably speak up because the rest of these guys aren't getting it here. you know." And the Lord says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Or thou savest not the things of God, but the things of man. And, of course, he knew Peter wasn't Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. Luke tells us that Satan departed from him for a season. And no doubt he's back here. What he tempted him with in the wilderness is turn away. I can give you the kingdom. You don't have to go through it. Now, it's the very same thing here through Peter. No, Lord, far be it from you. This isn't what needs to happen. And the Lord recognizes the influence and he rebukes the enemy at this point in time. And then he comes to these passages where, where you're not savoring things of God, savoring things of men. And verse 24 is kind of where we pick up. And he gives us this description of discipleship. You know, I'm kind of familiar with it, but every time I come back to it, it speaks to me more pointedly. You know, you're getting older and you got less excuses, you know, because you know better. You know, you're growing and uh, here in verse 24, the Lord then said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, because Peter's saying, Lord, no, you can't. No, not the way of the cross, Lord. You know, far be it. And Jesus kind of speaks to that. And he says, look, here's the deal. If any man will come after me, the, the idea is if any man desires, and it's a present tense, if any man is desiring to, to make this journey with me, walk through this path of life with me, if any man is desiring to come after me, he says two things here. Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and then follow after me. Let him deny himself. And look, as he says, take up his cross and follow me, they know what he's talking about. These are Jews under the heel of Rome. And they knew that anybody took up their cross, that that was the, then they were predisposed to crucifixion. If you take up the cross, 
That's the first step on the way to the place they're going to nail you to it. So for them, you know, this is the electric chair. This is the gas chamber. This is not jewelry, you know. They understand this is not talking about a comfortable thing here. He's challenging us, you know, to do this. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Now, that's not self-denial, okay? Denial of self and self-denial are two different things. We have people in the church that practice self-denial. Jenny Craig is self-denial. That <laughs> you're denying yourself so self looks better, you know. Uh, we have people in church that are in the martial arts. We have people in the church that are, you know, trained. We have people in the church that are um, athletes. There's, you know, and there's self-denial to move you forward. It's self-denial to produce something that's attached to you. Denial of self is vastly different. It's not self-denial. Self-denial is for self in one way or another. Denial of self is is an entirely different thing. Let him deny himself. Because, look, he's talking about here going to the cross. He's talking about the difficulty in really following him. And there's part of me that doesn't like that. I'm not, you know, I'm not a crucifixion guy. You know, I don't want to be eaten by sharks. Uh, I don't want to be tortured, and I don't want to be crucified, you know. But he's saying, do you really want to come after me, Joe? you really want to come after me? My kingdom's not of this world. He's going to say it here. It's not of this world. Then what you need to do is deny yourself. Because Joe's going to want to have his own way. Take up your cross. Man, that's denying self. That's the place of execution. And then, present imperative, be constantly, you must then constantly follow. It's a moment by moment, day by day. You know, you may go AWOL for 15 minutes here or there or for an afternoon, but the idea is the lifestyle is continually denying self by taking up your cross and then constantly following after him. And your cross is not, oh, my wife is my cross, my mother-in-law is my cross. No, that's not your cross. That's just life on earth. Your cross is putting you, the old man, to death. It's denying of self. It's a means of execution. It's, it's putting yourself down. Look, so you know, it's funny. We, we think of, we, particularly with this whole political environment we've been in, you know, we think so much, it needs to be this way. For the church, you get things accomplished. This has to go on. And this door has to be open. You realize when Jesus comes into the world, it tells us in Galatians that the Father sent him into the world in the fullness of time. It was the perfect time for him to come. And he comes into a world where there's no First Amendment rights. You know, I'll just say whatever you want to say. It's Rome's got their heel crushing the world. There's no Second Amendment rights. Everybody's not allowed to run around with a spear or a sword. Rome was ruling the world. He gets crucified for what he's doing. All of the the apostles, except John and Judas, end up martyred. He didn't come into a pleasant environment. He came into a place where people were broken and empty, and religion had given them nothing. Nothing. 
and they saw the light of his love and of his gospel in a difficult world and multitudes were turned. I mean, the first 300 years, six million Christians were martyred, eaten by beasts and lions, burned at the stake, killed by gladiators. Six million in the first 300 years. So we're here. We're in this environment. We're in this world. You know, I, I like it kind of cool and relaxing, you know. I'd like to uh, go home and relax and watch the Eagles win every game, um, have steak in the fridge. Uh, you know what I mean? I could write out a list and then you do that, Lord, I'll witness to everybody. <laughs> but if that's the world we're living in, nobody's going to listen. You know, it's the world of brokenness and it's the world. And, and that's why he came. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then he says to us, do you want to come after me? Peter, you're rebuking me. Tell me not to go to the cross. Do you want to be with me? Do you want to make this journey with me? You need to deny yourself to do that. Take up the, the old lecture chair and then follow after me. Let's do this together. Something for it's medicine for us. It's good to sit with that verse. Don't look at me. It's good for me. It's good for you too. Believe me, I'm prescribing it whether you like it or not. He says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. You know, people, he says, you're striving to hold on to your life. You're trying to do this. You're striving. You, you lose it. It takes, you know, people say that. You'll hear people say that. I feel like I'm losing it. You are losing it. Let go of it and you'll find it. As long as you're trying to hold on to it, you'll lose it, is what he's saying. So he said, whoever loses his life for my sake, they'll find it. You know, look what if we think through this, realize that every disciple is a Christian. Not every Christian is a disciple. Every disciple is a Christian, but not. Spurgeon said that. Don't look at me like you're not happy with me. You know, every disciple is a Christian, but not every Christian is a disciple. And he's calling us. You know, your discipleship and mine, if we've been with the Lord for a while, should be deeper now than it was five years ago or ten years ago. We should be growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the measure of self-denial and cross-bearing in our lives should grow with that process. And uh, and here he's beckoning them to do that. These are his. These are the apostles. They're, the future of the church is in their hands, and this is what he's saying. This is what you're going to need to do. In verse 26, he says, Because what does it profit a man? What is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world, that's the whole cosmos, the whole universe, and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He says one man's life is worth more than the entire universe. Because the entire universe is going to roll up like a garment and disappear. But each person that's saved, an eternity is saved. 
An eternity is, is established. They're going to be there beyond the rolling up of all this cosmos. So he, said, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole universe, the whole cosmos, and loses his life forever? You know, He says there's a process whereby some men gain everything now that people think they want and then lose it all eternally. And there's another place where men lose everything now that other men think are important, but then they, gave, they gain life eternally. And he's, saying, he's asking us to see through a certain lens. What does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, he loses his life. What are you going to give in exchange for, for your life? What's really worth more than that? And he says this challenge about discipleship, verse 27, here, this is why it's important. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father. Not from Washington, from heaven. The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now look, here talking to you and I as believers, you know, I'm talking about salvation. Salvation is not a reward, it's a free gift. Salvation you don't earn, you're not worthy of, you know, you can't, you know, work up for it or anyway. Salvation is a free gift. A sinner is saved by grace. But it does say in the second chapter of Ephesians, but there are good works foreordained that we should walk in them. It says right there, you know, it's, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by, it's by grace through faith, you know, that you're saved. He says, but we are his workmanship, his poema, beautifully, and that there's good works foreordained that we should walk in them. So we're his poema. I'll only use one other time in the New Testament. We're an expression. You know what a poem is or a song. He's artistic. He's the greatest artist there's ever been. And he's chosen that we would be his living, breathing poema, an expression to this lost world. And he says there, there is, we are his workmanship, you know, creating grace Jesus. And there's good works foreordained that we should walk in them. You can't beat this program. We're saved by grace through faith. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You get it for nothing. And then after you get in the program, he has good works foreordained for you to walk in them. And then you get rewarded for the good works he did through your life that you got by grace in the first place. There's not a better program going. You just have to believe it's all real. You know, this world's so tangible, we want to hang on to that. He's saying, learn to hang on to the other world. He says, understand, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward, not salvation, he shall reward every man according to his works. And then he steps further. He says, verily I say unto you, here's the truth, there's some of you standing here which shall not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now he's taking them then to the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's saying, look, some right here are not going to taste death. They're going to see the Son of Man because he had just said to them, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. 
I'm going to die there. I'm going to rise again the third day. Now he's going to take his disciples, Peter, James, and John specifically, uh, up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're going to read through it. When they see him there, he's talking with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And it's extremely important for them, even Peter, who said, you know, far be it from you, Lord. All of a sudden he's going to say, no, you lay down your life. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm not a victim. They're going to realize that when they see him in his glory. I'm not a victim. I'm, I'm doing, this is the program. I'm willing to lay down my life so you can live. I'll take the bullet for you. And when they see him in his glory, talking to Moses and Elijah, they're going to realize, no, wait, the law. You know, we have an idea of Messiah that he needs to make the present world perfect. He needs to let every man sit beneath his vine, his fig tree. He needs to overthrow Rome. And we're kind of shocked because he's saying, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and get killed. And we're chafing, having a hard time. And then, you know, they see this transfiguration. They realize, wait, you know. This is in keeping with the lawyers, Moses and Elijah, talking to him about it. So it's an important portion of Scripture. Look, Matthew wrote about it. He wasn't there. Mark wrote about it. He wasn't there. Peter's disciple. Um, Luke wrote about it. He wasn't there. So what took place on this mountain was communicated clearly enough that people who weren't there that recorded the Gospels for us wrote about it. Look, it made an impression on them, no doubt. You know, John says, you know, that he he dwelled among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw it. You know, Peter tells us in his second epistle, he says, moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease, and he uses that word that Jesus used uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from that excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard. Peter remembers that because we're going to see, first of all, they fall asleep. That's what they're, they're good at. And, and then when Moses and Elijah appear, they wake up and there's glory there. And they, they're looking at it. And Peter says, Man, it's a good thing we're here. You know, and Mark tells us he said that because he didn't know what to say. My advice is, if you ever find yourself in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in glory, and you don't know what to say, don't say anything. You know, Peter says, it's a good thing we're here. And then the voice overshadows him and said, this is my son, hear him. Peter remembers that voice. He's the only person ever to be told to shut up directly from heaven, evidently. So he said, we heard that voice when we were with him in the Holy Mount, and we, uh, we have also now a more sure word of prophecy, the scripture, 
whereunto you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Isn't the word of God a light shining in the dark place that we're in, you know, the promises and what it has to say to us, the blessed hope that we have. So, chapter 17. He ended by saying, there's some of you standing here, you're not going to taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And after six days, it says, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. The mountain was a separate mountain. After six days, we're not told what the conversations were like during those six days. I would love to have listened to them. He takes Peter, James, and John into a high, not on, into the, the, what is describing is the ascent up the side of a high mountain. And uh, he, we're up in the area of Caesarea Philippi, the lone high mountain up there is Mount Hermon. And when Constantine's mother came to the Holy Land, uh, St. Catherine, she went through, she established St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai, saying this is where Moses got this out, where Moses got the Ten Commandments. It was in Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia. Um, Paul says that in, in Galatians, Midian is in Saudi Arabia. So um, she looks at Mount Tabor, which is down in, in the Valley of Jezreel, which has this really nice round top on it. She said, aha, that's where the transfiguration took place. So they, they build shrines there and everything, but Josephus tells us in his day there was a Roman garrison station and a fortress on top of Mount Tabor, and Jesus didn't go up there with the Roman soldiers and get transfigured in front of them. So it's this other place, and it goes up to 10,000 feet. Any of you guys been in Denver? You've been somewhere where the elevation is 5,000, 6,000? You get winded. And Jesus and these three guys are going up this mountain. They probably have seven, eight thousand foot. No wonder when he stops, they fall asleep, you know. So they go up into this high mountain apart with him, Mount Hermon. And uh, as they, they go up, it says, and he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white. As light. Now, Luke tells us that, chapter 9, verse 32, that they fell asleep. Wherever got up there, Jesus kind of stopped. We're not, we don't know if he said, guys, let's take a break, or if he just said, I'm going to pray, guys, like he did before, you know, like he will in, in Gethsemane, and they fell asleep. But they fall asleep, and when they wake up, I'm no doubt, I'm light sensitive, probably the light woke them up. They wake up, and there's Jesus in his glory talking with Moses and Elijah. Now, just imagine this. It says Jesus was transfigured. That word is metamorphosis. You know what a metamorphosis is. Every one of you that went to elementary school had a class where you talked about a caterpillar making a cocoon around itself, and then after a certain amount of time, this beautiful butterfly comes out of the cocoon. That's a metamorphosis. It means what's on the inside comes to the outside. Jesus, his face shining like the sun, was not from the sun outside. It was shining from what was inside. His clothes, you know, I think Mark tells us they're whiter than any fuller on earth could make them. 
Luke tells us they're glistening, which is a word that means shining like a lightning. Matthew tells us here it's whiter than any way you can imagine. Look, that's what the clothes look like when the light's shining from the inside. So just imagine that. We're not told... Could people at a mile away see the side of the mountain lit up? That they, they, you know, was he visible to anyone else in the in the area? We're not told that. But all of a sudden he's changed. What's from the inside out? He's changed. Now look, Paul tells us this in Romans. I'm headed there. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. Paul says you need to go through a metamorphosis. You get saved. The Holy Spirit indwells you. There, there is the new birth, regeneration, something of divi- that's divine then is inside of you. And you let that then form your life and work its way out. Paul will say it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed, metamorphosized, into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. So he says, he says, when we seek Jesus, when we spend time alone, that's what these guys did. They're looking at him. You and I can get on our knees. We can get alone with him. It, by the way, men, if you do that, that's better for your wives and it's better for your kids. It's better for your family. Anybody, any other Christian, anyone else you're around, you're better off for them when you come from his presence. And it says when we're there beholding him, we are changed into his likeness from glory to glory. We, are, we go through a metamorphosis. If you're looking at Christ and you're looking to Christ and you're spending time in his presence. It's fun. Mike, Mike my son, gave me a, a copy of A.W. Tozer's biography. And they talk about what a quirky guy he was, you know. Um, Pink. Anybody here read Pink. A.W. Pink, he was a quirk too. A.W. Pink showed up on Sunday morning, preached, and walked out. Nobody knew where he was all week. Didn't have an office, didn't communicate, didn't talk to people on the phone, didn't counsel. He just walked in Sunday morning. They said, oh, here he is. He walked up in the pulpit, he preached, and he left. He was gone for a week again. Well, Tozier was was different than that. He liked doing camps. He'd be around people. But they said there were times when one guy in, in the biography he's talking he was supposed to be speaking at this camp meeting, and he said, we're getting ready to start. He's not there, and I'm thinking, okay, he's running late. We'll let the worship go, and he'll be there. By, by the time the worship's over, he'll be here. He said the worship got over. Tozer never showed up, so they had to grab somebody who wasn't expecting to speak. To speak, And he said the next morning he saw Tozer, and he said, yeah, you were supposed to be with us uh, last night. He said, oh, he said, I, w- I was upheld by another appointment. They said sometimes he would get into the presence of God and he couldn't leave. He couldn't leave. Um, I heard uh, Alan Redpath say that when he came to Chicago to Pastor Moody Church, he got a call and it was Tozier and he said, uh, you're down there at Moody, huh, Redpath? Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. He said, oh, I'd love to get together with you sometime. He said, all right, down on the shore of Lake Michigan. I'm there every morning at 530 
read past that, I thought, oh, a bit early. And he said, but I went down looking for him one morning, and he said, it was just getting light, and I see this form laying face down in the sand. And he said, the closer I got, the more overwhelmed I was with the presence of Almighty God. And it says as we do that, we go through metamorphosis. As we, you know, Tozer used to say, pray until you know you're praying. Right? That sounds like good advice. Then pray, until, once you know you're praying, until you know you're being heard. And then pray until your prayers are answered. You know, so Jesus changed what's inside of him, finds its way out. Once we're born again by the Spirit, that's a process in our lives, too, where we want what's inside of us to find its way out and express itself in this present world. It says there, he was transfigured before them. And in this transfiguration, his face did shine as the sun. Have you ever been in the Middle East and you know what the sun's like in the middle of the day? You're talking about something. His face did shine like the sun and his raiment, his clothing, it was as white as a light that's coming from inside. And behold, consider this, there appeared unto them, Peter, James, and John, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So he appeared unto them, but didn't talk to them. He appeared unto them, and they talked to, to, to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And the word talking there means talking. You can, if you can imagine that, the three guys wake up and look. Now, how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? That's kind of encouraging to me in some ways. You know, it tells us in Jude that Michael the archangel disputed with Satan over the body of Moses. So God had a, a, a future plan for it. Uh, Elijah was taken up in the chariot, you know, so his body went. Uh, Moses died over in Pisgah, and it says that Michael the archangel then got in a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses because God needed it. And uh, I believe those are the two prophets. We're studying Revelation on Sunday if we're here long enough to get to chapter 11. I believe the, those are the two prophets outside of Jerusalem, the law and the prophets there, that God had a plan for them. We're told here that Moses and Elijah, Luke says, they're talking to Jesus about the decease he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Do you ever think about your decease as an accomplishment? <laughs> Wonderfully, the word there for decease in the Greek is exodus. Moses is talking with Jesus about the exodus he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. He's probably saying, Lord, my exodus just wasn't that successful. I mean, we got him out of Egypt, and in no time they were back worshiping other gods. And, was, and, and Elijah must be saying, you know, I, I did my best to call him out. They called the fire down from heaven on you know, Mount Carmel. But before, before I knew it, they're back with Baal and you know, so they're talking with him about the exodus he's going to accomplish. And we're told in Ephesians that he actually leads captivity captive. Not captives, but captivity itself. Death and the grave. He has victory and he leads captivity itself captive. 
And it's the exodus he accomplishes. And he's taking us from hell and death and the grave. Like Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and the Red Sea parted. This is a bigger Red Sea that parted to get us into heaven from here. You know, he's accomplished that. So he's talking with them about that. You know, we don't know, are they saying, hey, you know, Ezekiel wanted to come. We we flipped a coin and, you know, just, you know, you can imagine heaven is looking at this whole thing. Moses and Elijah come. They're talking with him there about what he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. You can imagine what a remarkable conversation. And these guys, you know, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, when we come into the kingdom, then we shall know even as we've been fully known. So when you see Moses and Elijah in glory, you'll recognize them right away. I mean, they didn't have photo. They, didn't, they weren't photoshopped. You know, the, 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 these guys didn't have iPhones. They didn't have pictures of Moses. I didn't know what they, but they knew as soon as they looked at him, it was Moses and Elijah. That's, that's going to be cool. You're going to need that because when you see me there, I'll be about 30 years old. And you, you won't recognize me unless you have this supernatural knowledge. My dad, I keep a picture of my dad around when he was 30 years old in the Navy. He's midway in Okinawa, and I know when I see him, he's going to look like that. Just remind me, that's who I'm looking for when I get to heaven. Uh, but look at this. You know, you're going to meet your great, 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 great grandma that you never saw and you don't know, and you're going to recognize her as soon as you get there. My son and, and his wife have had five miscarriages. So I have five grandkids in heaven. I get seven here and five there. And I'm going to recognize them as soon as I see them. And spend eternity with them. As soon as they lie eyes on them, I'm going I'm to know what their names are. You know, just just imagine. So uh, this is this scene in glory where they get to be part of it. These fishermen, and they recognize Moses and Elijah. They're listening to the conversation. They're looking at glory. You know, one of the old Puritans said, maybe they needed the transfiguration so they can endure Gethsemane. Maybe these three needed to see him in his glory so they could watch him weeping and sweating great drops of blood in Gethsemane. Maybe it's what bolstered them up and realized this is not by mistake, this is not happenstance. But he's transfigured before them Look in verse 4. Then answered Peter. Now, Peter doesn't have to be asked a question ever to answer. He just talks. He's not part of the conversation. Then answered Peter, and he said unto the Lord, Man, it's good for us to be here. It's a good thing we're here. You can imagine Moses and Elijah looking over and looking back at the Lord. Really? You prayed all night before you picked these guys? You know, they probably said, Really? Like with a little oive in his intonation, you know. He says it's a good thing that we're here. This is amazing to me. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And we'll all just stay here together, you know. Who wants to go back, you know. Only problem is Jesus is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. It wouldn't be fitting to make three tabernacles the same for those three. Uh, you know, because the other one's the one that said it's Solomon's temple. You know, the, there's no building. Even the heavens can't contain the. But I can't believe Peter said this. No, it's interesting in Mark's gospel, because Mark was his disciple. Mark's the one who says, 
And he said that because he didn't know what to say. Because Mark probably said to him, when Peter told Mark what happened, Mark probably said, why the heck did you say that? And Peter said, because I didn't know what to say. And Mark actually writes it then in his gospel. He said it because he didn't know what to say. And look at verse 5. While he yet spake. Did he go on talking about it? While he yet spake, behold, consider this, a bright cloud overshadowed. What kind of a brightness causes a shadow? There are interesting contradictory ideas there. A bright cloud overshadowed. From what? What was brighter than that that made the shadow? Just an interesting picture. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and now this is important for us. Please, I've got to, of course, everything in my Bible is kind of. It says, Behold a voice, consider a voice, it came out of the cloud. Peter is going to write about that. We we read that. We heard his voice when we were in the Holy Mount. Look, when they come down from this, we'll look at it, we'll, we'll get to it, we've got enough time. Jesus is going to say to these guys, look, do me a favor. Don't tell anybody what you saw until after the resurrection. Because you know Peter is always, I can't wait to get down there and tell those guys what I saw. And they weren't there, just the three of us. Right? You know, Imagine telling these guys, don't tell. You, you're, see, you're seeing Jesus in glory with Moses and Elijah. What do you mean don't tell anybody? Look what happens. While he yet spake, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, consider this. A voice came out of that cloud, this brilliant cloud, no doubt the Shekinah, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Had they heard that at John's baptism? I don't know. Hear ye, and it's you must continually be hearing him. And look what it says. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and they were sore afraid. If you're going to be afraid, this is the bad kind of afraid. Sore afraid. Isn't it interesting? They didn't fall down on their faces when they looked at Moses and Elijah and Jesus. When their eye gate was open and they saw glory, they didn't collapse. It's when they heard the voice of Almighty God, they went down. Isn't that interesting? That's why he wrote about us so long. That impression, this was the voice of Jehovah God. And he speaks to Peter. It interrupts him. This is my son. He talks to human beings. He, you know, you see, it, you see at, you know, at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, when God speaks, everybody falls down. There's over three million people there went on their faces. God spoke from the mount. Here he speaks, and these guys go down. The, just what was the voice of Almighty God like? It tells us in the Psalms that it splits the cedars of Lebanon. It causes the ground to quake. It causes the animals to bring forth and give birth. It's so you know, amazing here. It says, it says, when they heard that, not when they saw, when they heard, they were sore afraid. They fell on their face. And then look, it says, Jesus came and touched them and said, arise. And you must stop continually being afraid is the sense of it. It's it's a present imperative. So they're really interesting here. You know, here they go down, the presence of Almighty God. 
his voice comes out of the cloud, which freaks them out more than, than looking at Moses and Elijah and Jesus. The voice flattens them. No doubt their eyes were closed. You want to close your eyes when something like that happens. You fall on your face and you close your eyes. You know. And it says, Jesus came and touched them. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Isn't it interesting? The human expression of God in Christ is what calms them again. God in his glory, speaking from heaven, was, was no consolation to them. You know, we're, we, we, you know you're, we're, there's part of him, you're in his presence, and it just shrinks you. But when that presence is in this physical form, and he comes and he touches them. Isn't it interesting? He touches them. Puts his hands on them says, guys, stop being afraid. And they look up and it says, Moses is gone, Elijah's gone, the talking cloud is gone, everything's gone but Jesus himself. And think of that. He says, stop being afraid. And they looked up and they saw Jesus only lifted up their eyes, which had been down. Verse 9, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, now he knows these guys, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Isn't it interesting? He knows them. So they're coming down the mountain, and look, they're walking behind him. Tell me what that was like. They had walked behind him for three years already. Now, they were amazed because they saw him raise the dead. They saw him rebuke the wind and the sea. They saw him walk on the water, but they just saw him in his glory. They just saw him transfigured. And they're walking down the hill behind him. Now, I got a feeling they're all kind of quiet because they know the back of his robe. They know where there's pulls, where the, 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 the hem is crooked. Uh, they know if he's got a mole on his neck. They know what his hair looks like from the back. They've been following him. And it was the same, but it was never the same again. It was now in him we beheld a glory. So what they were so familiar with, all of a sudden is completely unfamiliar. And, they, and you know, these guys are going to be thinking, do it again. Do it again. Because they're going to say to him, hey, when you come in the kingdom, can we sit one on your right hand, one on your left hand? I mean, they're, they're not getting take up the cross and follow me in, in this process. But imagine what it was for them then, walking with him. And they're not allowed to tell the other guys. The man was saying to Peter, don't you know, it's like the kids in the back of the car. Don't you do that. So he says, don't tell any man what you saw until the Son of Man is risen again from the dead. Now, Mark 9 tells us that. Let me just read it for you. It's easier. Mark chapter 9 says this in the context. Uh, it says... And then they kept saying within themselves, questioning with one another, what the what the rising from the dead should mean. You, you don't catch it in English. It's ekonekron. Jesus said, do me a favor. Don't tell anybody until the Son of Man is risen out from among the dead. And that floored them. They were Jews. They believed in the resurrection, you know, wonderfully in... in uh, 
In Job chapter 19, it's one of the really wonderful verses in the Old Testament. He said he's in the middle of his suffering, and God reveals something. He said, "Oh, I wish I had a, a pen, a, a chisel, to carve this in a rock. In fact, I wish my words were written in a book." Little did he know, you know. And he says, "For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in the latter day he shall stand upon the earth, and after this skin, his body is destroyed, my eyes will see him for myself." There was a resurrection. That, that he wrote about. Daniel chapter 12 talks about the resurrection. Many are going to be raised, some to, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and contempt. So in the mind of the Jews, they believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees and the scribes did. But what threw them here is the Jews believed in one general resurrection. That, that the wicked and the just would all be raised at the same time. Jesus is saying, now don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man is risen out from among the dead. And then Mark tells us they keep questioning among themselves, what, what's the rising out from among the dead? It means some dead's going to be left behind and he's going to rise out from it. We never heard anything like this. They're going back and forth talking about the whole thing. Look, we find this in the New Testament. There is... The first resurrection and the second resurrection. We're going to get to it in Revelation 20 if we're still here. First resurrection is a category. It's not a chronological event. First resurrection, Jesus certainly was part of that. The beginning of it. The first fruits were told by Paul. But then it tells us in Matthew, and, and when we see Matthew, you know, we're going to say thanks for, for that. He's going to say, and then many of the saints that slept came out of the graves in the days after the resurrection and spoke to many. What do you mean? What is that? But they have to be part of the first resurrection. And then at the rapture of the church, we're part of the first resurrection. And then it seems like the Old Testament saints that died in faith are raised before the kingdom is set up. Or no, the kingdom will be set up first so that when they come to life in the resurrection, they see the kingdom. And then at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, those who die in faith are raised. That's the first resurrection. And it says there, blessed is he who has no part in the second death. Because you die once physically. We'll do that if the Lord tarries, but we'll be part of the first, the group of people that's the first resurrection that spans several thousand years. But then there's the second death. You die physically, then you die eternally. And here Jesus said to the guys, hey, look, do me a favor. First of all, you don't have the gospel picture clear. You're going to be arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. You're going to be, you know, rebuking me as I talk about the cross. Don't tell anybody what you saw until the Son of Man is risen out from among the dead. Mark says they kept saying to one another, what does that mean, rising out from among the dead? And then they come with this question to him. They were asking themselves a question before. His disciples then asked him, saying, well, why then saith the scribes that Elijah must first come? What do you mean? Don't tell anybody. Isn't this what the scripture said would happen? Because the Old Testament, Malachi, ends saying this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, 
lest, that's a grace word, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the Jews taught clearly Elijah was coming. When they have the Passover Seder, they leave a seat at the table for Elijah. They believe Elijah's going to come. In fact, the Muslims believe that Elijah's going to come before Christ comes, returns. And, and that's why in Jerusalem, in front of the East Gate, they, built, they put a cemetery there because they believe Elijah is part of the priestly line. Nobody knows that. They believe that and that because he's a priest, he wouldn't walk through a cemetery to go in the East Gate and up to the temple. Uh, so they believe Elijah is coming too. And we believe that's going to take place at, you know, the, the two prophets outside of uh, Jerusalem. That Elijah is going to be one of them. When I go to Israel, sometimes you think, is he alive now? Is he around? I look at what's going on in the world. I'm thinking, hey, the Antichrist's got to be around somewhere. There's too many powerful people that never got along before that are all marching in step, taking orders from a puppet master somehow. When you see those people who are always in competition working you know, together, then you know there's a command and control center somewhere that's above them. And I think, all right, where's the puppet master these days? As you watch what's happening globally, it has control of everything. Well, you know, in the, in this other picture, uh, you have Christ coming. And, and it says, that, you know, the, the world is going to wonder after him when he comes. Not the, the Antichrist. When Christ actually makes his return, that then we enter into this kingdom age. It's going to be remarkable. Uh, we have the opportunity now, while we're alive, to take up our cross and to follow him, to deny ourselves, and to walk with him. says that he's coming, and Elijah's going to come first. It's, I go to Israel now several times, like we're at the Garden too. I remember I was there a couple of years ago. I saw this young Israeli guy with his hair pulled back in a ponytail and had this beard, and he just was a stud. He looked like a prince. And I thought, I wonder if that's Elijah. <laughs> you know, is he getting dropped off by a fire, fiery chariot? Is there, you know, how's he, you know, but, you know, he's going to be around here soon. Jesus, they said, well, then why is it, if we can't talk about it, why does the scribes talk about it? Why does the scripture say Elijah has to come first? Jesus answered and said to him, look, Elijah truly shall first come. Prophecy, the scripture, and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, whatever they wanted to do. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. It says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. You know, because Gabriel said to Zechariah, you know, he's going to go forth in the power and in the spirit of Elijah when he was born. Elijah was the predecessor. You know, he was to come and make, you know, make way, make your path straight for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist did that. But Israel, of course, didn't receive him as Elijah, didn't receive Christ as the Messiah. So it, it wasn't manifest. And God, knowing that, predicted in the last days the reality of those things will take place. And before Christ makes his second coming, Elijah is going to come. And I believe Moses, uh, who were old buddies by this time. And they're going to be on the scene outside the walls of Jerusalem. So uh, interesting things to look at. Interesting things to take to heart. I would encourage you, look. 
who knows where everything's going? I don't know that. I know who's coming down and who's going up, but I don't know where everything's going. You know, and I know the church through the centuries has survived and flourished under Rome, has survived and flourished under all kinds of... I've had opportunity to preach in Germany several times at the Calvary there in a socialistic government, and the church was flourishing. Our resource is from above. And it's great for us to maybe come to terms with that now and realize whatever happens on the horizontal, if we're not drawing you know, our resources from the vertical, we're never going to infect the world around us that's so lost. Let's take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. Is it easy? No. Can you do it on your own? No. Are you dependent on him to do that? You bet. But if he's asked us to do it, he'll extend the grace to us to do that. And one of the things that helps us do those things is a fresh vision of glory. I mean, these guys, again, coming down the mountain, saw the back they had walked behind for several years now, and they knew every stitch and every gray hair. And, you know, the, the, you know, the Pharisees would say, you knew Abraham, you're not even 50 years old yet. So we, we get a sense that he was worn, that he looked older, you know. They, they recognized that the back of the master was never the same again. It was different following him from the time they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And it bolsters that charge that he gives to us. You know, we need to behold him in his glory. We can do that because it says that's how we're transfigured. We're, we're metamorphosized into his own image and his own likeness as we behold him. And it's in beholding him that we have the grace, I believe, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Read ahead. You guys are fishermen. There's a great story about catching fish with money in their mouth. That's always encouragement. Yeah. Father, we thank you for the time together this evening, Lord. We And I ask, Lord, you keep your hedge about our fellowship, our school, Lord, this pandemic, Lord, this virus that is going through the culture and around the world, Lord, that you would keep a hedge around us. We don't deserve it, Father. It isn't anything in us that's worthy of that, but we are blood-bought, Father. We're set aside for your purposes. And we want to be a light in this community, in this city, Lord. We want people to find hope, Lord. We don't want to live in fear. We want to be wise. So, Lord, as we have opportunity to search the pages of Scripture, give us each our portion. You know what we need, Lord. And give us the grace to deny ourselves, Lord. Give that to me, Lord. And to take up my cross, take up our crosses and, and follow you, to walk with you, to journey with you, Lord. My, my selfish nature, my fallen nature is so not inclined to that, Lord. And yet, Lord, through the new birth, there's just part of me that constantly, is affirming that that's the right thing to do. So give us the grace, Lord, to do that. And we're thankful when we think about the resurrection out from among the dead, Lord, that is ahead of us so soon. 
Thank you for these things, Lord Jesus. We look to you, Lord, pray for anyone here tonight that's struggling in one particular way or another, that you would minister to them, Lord. You're so personal to speak to us, to touch us, even when we're afraid, and then speak to us and tell us not to be afraid. Lord, do that. Move among us tonight. We trust you. And Lord Jesus, we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.